Well, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And so you can turn there. We'll read it kind of right here at the beginning. We'll read verses 1 to 12. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. And you'll find 1 Corinthians 16 on page 1,154 in those Bibles, 1,154. Then I would like to just go ahead and read our passage and then do a bit more of an introduction. So I'll give you a minute to flip your pages there, and then we'll read. All right, 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. The first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. This chapter... As really a collection of closing thoughts. It's a clear reminder to us that this is a letter. It's a letter that he wrote to some believers that he knows. And he's been dealing with specific questions, rich questions, practical church life questions. And now as it gets near the end, it's just like it was a personal correspondence perhaps that you were doing. It would have some kind of wrap-up comments, some personal greetings, some practical nuts and bolts. So it has a little bit of a, of a more of a jumbled feel in, in this last chapter. And we'll end up covering it over two weeks. But there's really not kind of one clear overarching theme. And so we'll just handle it as it is. We'll really look at three kind of chunks of thought here. Some instructions on giving. Uh, some instructions on sending. And, and then woven throughout, we'll see some instruction really on decision making and the will of God. And so that's what we'll see today, these sort of three separate ideas as he's wrapping up this book, uh, some nuts and bolts that he's writing to them. But those first two of the three that we'll look at today, uh, instructions on, on giving and sending, it reminds us of the unavoidable, interwoven, interdependent nature of the body of Christ. In this last chapter, he discusses 13 people or places by name in these 24 verses. Collections are raised from one group of believers to to send all the way across the known world uh, to another group of believers that they had never met, but that were impoverished and had great need. And, And so you have a group of people that are helping another group of people that they have nothing in common with besides Jesus. And it turns out that that's enough. 
And so there's this interdependent relationship that we're seeing described here. He's relying on these believers as well to send him on his journey as Paul continues these missionary journeys. And so he describes that. He encourages them to welcome Timothy and Apollos, these other believers really in a missionary mode, to welcome them and send them. There's this participation then that's happening. As we get to the rest of the chapter next week, we'll see some other churches that he mentions by name and passes on greetings. It's another reminder that the Bible knows nothing of individualistic, independent Christianity. That individual believers, although yes, it's a personal relationship with God, and we emphasize that for good reason, but, but with that, there is an interdependence with one another that we cannot avoid as we walk through Scripture. So let's walk through this now. The, the first section, again, what we see is that some instructions on giving he gives here, that giving should be planned, proportional, and carefully handled. Planned, proportional, and carefully handled. This was a specific giving request for a unique situation. What was going on is that all the way over in Jerusalem, across the Mediterranean, the believers that were there, uh, the Christians that were there, were, were very impoverished and were suffering. And there were a variety of reasons probably for that. Uh, there was a famine that went through the region a few years before this, so they're probably suffering from that. Uh, the early believers, many of them were coming to Christ out of already kind of a poor and marginalized background, so they didn't have as many resources. Many of them had gathered in Jerusalem uh, as kind of this hot spot, and they'd moved there, but there were, perhaps wasn't as much work. And, and also, as they came to Christ, many of them were cut off from other sources of aid in the Jewish community in Jerusalem. And so all these factors probably came together to bring about a great need. And so Paul was talking to the various churches that he had planted, gathering money to take to these believers in Jerusalem. He discusses this in 2 Corinthians again. He discusses it in Romans chapter 15. It comes up in several places. So it's a specific situation, but with that, there are some broader principles on giving that I think we can apply to other situations today. So we'll make some observations on those. And the first one is we can see that their giving was, was planned. It was supposed to be planned. Look at, look at verse 2. He describes this. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. They were to set aside this money on the first day of the week, which was... Another indication that they were gathering for worship on the first day of the week, on what we call the Lord's Day, on Sunday, as opposed to Saturday, the, the Jewish Sabbath. That's likely an indication of what they were doing here. And they're to set aside weekly here this money so that when Paul does come, their giving is kind of ready to be taken and distributed to, to this need. Uh, giving can sometimes be spontaneous. You know, we hear of a need, we've got some extra funds. And we say, oh, yeah, Lord, I can, I can meet that. And it seems like God providentially puts it together and we meet it spontaneously. But if that's all we do is wait for spontaneous acts of giving so that the need and our ability and our desire all come together at once, what's our giving going to be like? Probably not a lot, right? Because that if we don't plan for it, it often doesn't happen. We might have good intentions, but sometimes we fail to follow through. Uh, in fact, even with the Corinthians, he has to write them later in the second book and 
give a bit of a reprimand to follow up on their good intentions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 to 12, he says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. You were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, and this is talking about giving, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also. So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be, uh, there may be also the completion of it by your ability. It's an experience that perhaps you know too, of good intentions, but, but kind of failing to follow through. And he's encouraging them, they follow through. You have these good intentions, good desire, uh, let's follow through. In the same way it might be with kind of our own giving. If we have good intentions, whether it's to help with a particular mission project overseas we become aware of or a group of, of poor believers or, or work of the local church or whatever it might be and we desire it but we don't put a plan in place, sometimes it just doesn't happen. So your plan might come through setting up you know, recurring online donations or writing a check at the beginning of kind of your budget cycle or whatever it might be, but just being intentional about it. I think we can see a principle here for that as he encourages them to plan ahead for this. Sometimes we fear that if we do that, it won't be an act of worship. And of course, our giving is to be primarily an act of worship, not just kind of a rote routine. Uh, and yet, I think we can learn to, to give in a way that's worshipful and intentional. That's what we see modeled here. So their giving was to be planned, but it was also proportional. Notice what he says, again, in the same verse. Uh, he says in verse 2, to one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. In other words, as, as God prospers, uh, then they're in a position to, to, to give more. And, and so they're not just taking that surplus and kind of adding it to their own, but saying, God, perhaps you want me to, to give more through this. And so that prospering, it gives an opportunity to, to give. Um, I don't necessarily see in the New Testament a repetition of the, the tithe, giving you know, the requirement to give 10%. I think there's a wise principle there to follow. But what we do see repeated is this idea of kind of, as we're prospering, to take that and pass it on. Not just being a, a reservoir of greater wealth, but a conduit. Randy Alcorn, he, in his book on giving, has a, a great little analogy of this. He says, imagine a, a FedEx employee, and the FedEx employee has all these packages that are given to him. He loads in his truck, and then he just takes them home, and he just uses these TVs and phones and whatever it might be in his own home. And his boss finds out about it and says, what, what are you doing? And he says, well, what? if you didn't want me to keep it, why did you give it to me? And the guy says, you're, you're the FedEx delivery guy. <laughs> this is not your job to take it and keep it. You're to take it and pass it along. And in many ways, that's us as believers. And certainly the Lord uh, gives us often extra so that we can be in a position to give. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy it and um, enjoy the blessings that God gives us in life as well, but, but looking for opportunities to give as we may prosper. I think we see that principle in here. So they were to give in a way that was planned, that was proportional, but notice also that it was to be carefully handled. Look at verse, verse 3 in particular. He says, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with the letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Just a short statement, but we can see in there an intentionality to handle this giving with integrity. They're, they're gathering these funds, they're planning it, but Paul's not just taking off with it and, 
and kind of giving no record. He says, take somebody that you appoint, somebody that you have confidence in, is implied there, and, and they're going to take this gift, and they're going to carry it. And if it's appropriate, I'll go too, but, but there's to be this accountability. There's to be transparency. I want to briefly talk about how we try to handle that at UBC. Some of you are, are probably aware of this already, but if you're perhaps a little bit newer, you, you might not be. We, we try to take this transparency and accountability really seriously. So there's money that's given perhaps online, in the mail, in the offering box at the back. Uh, there's some money counters that their position has been voted on by the members of the body, the people that we think, hey, they have, they have some accountability, they have some credibility here. There's always two of them that work together. They take those funds, and on Sunday afternoons, they count it, they double-check with each other, uh, they put it in a sealed envelope, and that gets taken and deposited at the bank. Uh, from there, our treasurer, who is also chosen from among the membership, kind of following the same pattern, you know, they're approving somebody to do it, so uh, a treasurer chosen from among our membership uh, keeps track of that, keeps a detailed um, account of our spending and giving. Uh, he's the only one who really knows who gives what because he's maintaining a, a record of that to be able to distribute to people at the end of the year, uh, unless, of course, somebody's giving cash, in which case there's, there's no way even that, that he would know in that scenario. Um, I don't know what people give. Our other board members don't know. Um, we don't want that to sway in any way our decision-making or shepherding. And so if, if you've ever thought, oh, I'll give a little bit more, and then they'll... They'll, they'll maybe give more weight to what I'm saying. You're, you're wasting your money. Because <laughs> I don't know anyways, right? We don't, we don't want to be swayed by that. And so, so we intentionally, uh, I intentionally don't know what anybody gives. Uh, uh, we keep track of that. We post monthly statements that are available in our resource center. We post them up there that's very detailed on giving as well as spending, and if there's any questions you have on that, you're always welcome to look, because we want to be fully transparent. That's even why we post each week an updated kind of amount of giving that comes in weekly and monthly. Uh, it's, it's just a desire to be transparent, and so that you guys kind of know what's happening. So we're not, we're not talking about this now uh, because giving's down and we need to like make up for it. Right? If that was the case, then I planned way back in the fall to start teaching 1 Corinthians to get to this point. Right? No, it's just, it talks about it, so we're covering it here. Um, there's no financial scandals, so we're talking about the transparency or accountability. Uh, but we just want you to know that we try to take this seriously, and it's because of passages like this that we see in Scripture. He repeats this similar idea as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, talking about collecting this giving and using it. He says, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. What a great statement. We want to, before the Lord, we, we want to act with integrity. But he says, also in the sight of men. We don't want to give any cause for the gospel to be tainted by financial misuse. And so we try to take extra precaution on that. Well, there is a particular type of giving here. And I mentioned it's a specific situation of poor believers in Jerusalem, then funds being raised from wealthier believers in Corinth. I don't want to pretend that there's a straight and obvious line from that to kind of giving in the local church. Uh, but there are some principles that would then carry over uh, to any 
active giving that we're doing, where we're planning, we're recognizing as God prospers, perhaps there's more opportunities to give. We're conducting that with accountability. And we see in the New Testament that it's often the local church that gathers that. We see that in the book of Acts in chapters 4 to 6, the local church was gathering and distributing. Um, so we see some principles there. Uh, but really, we don't want to miss that giving, in whatever scenario like this for a believer, it's an act of worship. It's something that both reflects our heart and, and directs our heart. We see that in, and I'll skip over some, some other passages here, in some of Jesus' teaching on giving. In Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's certainly more that he's talking about here than just money. Uh, but, but there are some principles here with money, that as we direct our giving, as we direct our finances towards not just consuming, you know, what can I get out of it, but, but how can I give, how can I bless, how can I help, we're storing up our treasure in some place more permanent. And, and notice this cause and effect here, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not that your heart's already there, so your giving follows that, but he kind of seems to imply the opposite. That as we place our money towards things that are lasting, as we give, that our heart follows along. And so even as we think about some practical nuts and bolts there, don't want to lose sight of the big picture. It's, it's an act of worship. It's, a, it's a, an act that directs our hearts and reflects our hearts and reflects our values. Uh, the concerning thing is as we look at kind of the swath of believers in, in America is that there's been a priority on, on giving among older generations that's not necessarily being picked up by younger generations. So one study I saw uh, showed that 80% of giving by believers in American churches is done by those that are 55 and up. Um, 80% is given by those who are 55 and up. Those in their 20s are substantially less likely to give. Uh, my generation, which would be like, Gen X, and then millennial generation under that, we, we see this, this pattern, even if there's the same income level of not desiring to give. And of course, there's maybe practical administration concerns for that, but it's also a concern that these believers, younger believers, might be missing out on the blessings that come from living with open hands and giving generously, giving as a pattern of life rather than as a pattern of consumerism choosing to break the hold of materialism by, by giving. And so if you're in that younger generation, I just encourage you to kind of evaluate your own kind of financial life, not just are you planning for retirement, are you buying a house and other wise things, but, but where does giving fit in? And do you need to perhaps come alongside an older believer who's been faithful in this and say, hey, would you help me to think about this accurately? Would you help me to, to put some planning in place so that I can be a, a generous giver? Okay, so we see some nuts and bolts here, some, some little comments on giving. And, and then it turns to sending, still sort of with a, a related idea. And we see that missionaries, Paul talking about himself, but then Apollos and Timothy as well, uh, should be supported and sent by local churches. And again, we just see something described that I think we can take some principles from. He plans to come and visit them. 
He describes this in verse 5. He says, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Uh, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. I want to help you to picture what he's describing here. Uh, This is a rough map kind of of this part of the world. Uh, Paul is here, if you, can, if you can see this, I know it's kind of small, here in Ephesus, which would be on the coast of Turkey. This would be modern-day Turkey. He's here in Ephesus. They're over here in Corinth. He plans to, apparently on, on foot, because he's going to come through Macedonia, to, to travel up through here, through Macedonia, and come down and visit with them. That's his plan. He's riding from Ephesus right here. He's probably in the springtime because he says he intends to stay through Pentecost. So he's there. He's going to make this journey and come around. And he says, hey, I hope to be with you for a while. And then I I would ask that you would maybe be in a position to to send me on on my way. And and likewise for Timothy. Verse 10, he says, if Timothy comes... See that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace. It's an interesting little statement in there too. He says, let him have no cause to be afraid. What kind of a reflection is that on their local church? If he says, hey, I'm going to send Timothy, don't scare him, right? (laughs) Imagine, uh, so Brad, uh, who's leading worship this morning, is going to fill in, uh, preaching at a little church at American Falls that's between pastors right now. He's going to fill in, I think, in an upcoming Sunday. Can you imagine if I had to say, yeah, Brad's going to come. Please treat him well. Don't scare him, right? It's perhaps an indication of some of the issues that they've had. But he says, no, don't despise him. Don't, don't give him reason to fear, but send him. And then he describes Apollos in verse 12 in a similar way. Again, he's just describing something that's happening, but we can pull out some principles. Now, these local churches, Corinth, and he's writing to others as well, are cooperating to send, to receive, and to send these missionaries. We can do that today. We do do that today. There's missionaries that our church supports regularly. Uh, you're perhaps aware, but 10% of all the giving is put in a mission fund, and that's overseen by a mission committee that supports these missionaries and sends them on. And we we have a policy from several years ago of trying to support fewer missionaries with more money rather than just, you know, a small gift here, here, here in kind of a scattered way, trying to be intentional to support fewer missionaries with more funds so that we can deeply know these missionaries. And so that's something you can get on board with. If you're if you're giving, that's already going to that. But when we have a missionary come and you find out that, hey, there's going to be an open house to hear from them, you might think, I don't, I don't know them. And I'm kind of introverted. The idea of an open house is kind of, ah, it's not a great fit for me. But that might be a way for you to get to know these missionaries that we are sending on their way. Or often we'll have them come and speak during a Sunday school hour. And even if Sunday school is not part of your regular routine, you might say, I'm going to stay so that I can hear from this missionary. Or they might have a sign-up out in the lobby where you can sign up to get their emails. You might say, I'm going I'm to do that so that I can, I can know what's going on and so that I can pray for them. It's just our desire to continue this pattern that we see in the early church of receiving and sending. It looks a little bit different now because of our, our kind of modern world, but similar ideas. We don't want 
as missionaries to feel like they're just kind of on their own, but that they're financially supported as well as supported in prayer and relationship and just that we, we know them and we know what's going on in their lives. So some instructions on giving, some instructions on sending that would kind of go together because part of their sending, I think, is implied that they're putting them in a financial position to go. Uh, so we see those in there. But I want to also just note some observations that as I was studying this, they're not, they're not maybe the main point of the passage, but just some little nuggets that I think can inform us in our own practice of decision-making and, and the will of God. Again, it's kind of a, a random assortment of things in there, but, but there are some things I just couldn't help but notice. And even with this, we won't cover everything. It would be a long message in itself to try to do justice to process of decision-making and how that fits with God's providential sovereign will. But I want you to notice some things in here. First, I think, you could say that it's okay to consider your desires. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. It says, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. doesn't seem like he's criticizing Apollos for that. He doesn't kind of play the God card and say, well, but it's God's will for you to go, or something he's just, Paul, Apollos just doesn't desire to right now, so he's going to stay where he's at, and then he'll come when he has an opportunity. I think we can be reminded there that within biblical obedience, so kind of in that circle of kind of what God has marked out as a realm of freedom, so we're not talking about sin or obedience, we're just saying, this, no, it's all within obedience. There's a lot of freedom just to consider what you want, right? What job do you want? What profession? What, where do you want to live? What, what do you want to do? There's a ton of freedom there to consider our desires. And I think sometimes we over-spiritualize decision-making where we almost assume that if it's something that I want to do, well, that must just be my flesh and I should probably say no to that. And so we always feel like maybe guilty if we're doing something we want. And I think this would be just a little nugget of it's okay to consider our desires. But also notice another principle. We think we see this in verse 7. Don't assume that your desires necessarily equal God's desires. Look at verse 7. Paul talking about, again, his plans of going to visit them. And he says, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. I hope to remain for some time, if the Lord permits. He says, This is my desire. I I want to come and I want to stay for some time, if the Lord permits. Implying that, the Lord may not. It, it perhaps might be that they're redirected from some circumstances that are outside of his hands. And he says, I desire this, I'm planning on it, but God may overrule that. It, it's the same idea that James is discussing in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The problem wasn't the business plan, right? I'm going to go to this city, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to do this. That wasn't the problem. It was this kind of closed fist. This is for sure what we're going to do. And he says, no, instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we'll live, like, I'll even keep on breathing if he wills, but, but also do this or that plan. So we can plan, and in fact, that's the next 
one of the next points here in just a minute. Um, uh, we can plan, but with an open hand. We can consider our desires, but with an open hand and say, if the Lord wills, if God desires this, if the Lord permits, um, but holding it loosely. It was a common practice of believers from previous generations to end written letters with the initials DV. Anybody, you heard of that practice? DV. And it was the Latin phrase, Deo Valente, meaning if the Lord wills. And it was just common practice to, to write perhaps another believer and laying out their plans and then just write DV because it's the, if the Lord wills. There's a lot of things that could, could change that. All right, next of the, of the four observations I want to make about decision-making in God's will. We're reminded here that adversity doesn't necessarily mean it isn't God's will. When we encounter adversity, that's shouldn't just be a conclusion, well, I guess God doesn't want me to do this. And the reason I say that is because of something he describes here in verse, verses 8 and 9. It says, I will remain in, in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I might hear that there are many adversaries, so I'm coming to you soon, right? I want to get out of here. And yet he says, no, there's a wide door for ministry, and there's many adversaries, but I'm going to stay as the Lord allows this. We, couldn't, we shouldn't approach adversity, hardship, even people that are adversaries as an indication that we're outside of God's will and we need to change course. Sometimes the Lord wants us to trust him and work through difficulty. So we see a little, little nugget on that. And then the last thing I want to mention, and this really ties in with some of what we've already discussed with giving, trusting in God doesn't prohibit planning. Trusting in God, trusting in God's will, wanting to do what the Lord permits doesn't mean we shouldn't plan. We've already seen in this passage him talking about planning to give and setting aside funds and his plans to come get it and to distribute it and to send on various people. Uh, again, sometimes we, should, we can act as if, ah, if I'm planning out the future, I'm not trusting in God and I need to hold it loosely. And yes, we hold it loosely, but we see examples of planning. We see biblical principles throughout, especially the book of Proverbs, about planning. Proverbs 15, 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. There's, there's planning and diligence rather than hastiness. And yet we also see Proverbs 69, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We plan but the Lord directs, and sometimes he directs in a way that's perhaps different than we planned, right? There's an obstacle that comes up that just makes that impossible to do, and we say, I, the Lord's not permitting this at this point, I guess. So here's where this maybe fits with a few different groups. If you're a high school senior, and you're sort of feeling the weight of coming decisions about what do you do after high school, and you're probably getting peppered with questions of what are you going to do next, what are you going to do next, what are you going to do next, and to realize it's okay to plan. It's okay to consider your desires. In fact, those are good things to do. Hold it loosely if the Lord permits. Get consultation. Lean on the Lord. And yet it's okay to kind of work through this process of planning and considering desires. And yet if you reach some adversity there, don't conclude that means that, well, I just have to give up on this. Sometimes 
the Lord allows adversity in our way. It can be the same for somebody who's starting a business, somebody who's kind of up and coming in their profession. It's true even for a homeschool parents on the edge of kind of a new school year, and they're planning out to plan, but hold loosely. So this comes up in a lot of areas of life. Well, I want to wrap up. I want to wrap up this section that I acknowledge at the beginning is it's kind of a random assortment of things as he's wrapping up this letter. But, but I want to kind of remind you of one thing that we see running through it is this interdependent nature of believers with one another, giving to support one another, sending other missionaries on the way so that they can take the gospel to other places, that we're, we're working together when the thing that we have in common is Christ. It's not other things in our background. It's not socioeconomic status. It's not language. There's even language barriers that are being worked across here. It's, it's Christ. And that's one of those timeless principles that supersedes this specific you know, situation here.